ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It is a balancing act managing work and home, especially if home also involves caring for children or grandchildren, ageing parents, a spouse with a disability. For a very long time in this country, that work was seen as the family's responsibility and it fell mainly to women. And some of our policies have changed to better support carers, but navigating the different systems can feel like a job in itself, and they're patchy too across the country. That's having impacts on individuals, but also across the board for our economy and our society, and it's widening gender gaps. Today, we're going to sift through some solutions that have been proposed. And I would love to hear from you too. What would make a difference in balancing work and care in your life or your household? Is it about the cultures at work, perhaps, that might help support you when you have those extra responsibilities? Is it about uh, the tax system? Is it about financial things, financial support? Or is it about something broader about just generally how we have those conversations and the level of acknowledgement and, uh, I guess, community support that you might find. Two people who've been thinking about this very deeply for quite a long time are Professor Marianne Baird, who's a Professor of Gender and Employment Relations at the University of Sydney. Marianne, welcome. Thank you. Good morning, Hilary. And Professor Elizabeth Hill, who's a Professor at the Department of Political Economy at the University of Sydney. Elizabeth, great to have you with us. Thanks for having us, Hilary. And Professor Baird and Professor Hill are contributing editors of the new book, At a Turning Point, Work, Care and Family Policies in Australia. Uh, Marion, a really interesting aspect of this book is that you're taking a life course approach to care. So looking from reproduction right through to old age at all the different kinds of care people do instead of viewing them as, as separate elements of life and policy. Why have you taken that approach? Yes, thanks, Hilary. Look, that was a deliberate Um, decision by us because we know that people's lives actually do follow a life course and it's quite pronounced when you look at the labour market patterns of women in Australia and then when we looked at the policy settings we see quite distinct gaps between the different parts of our lives. So what we're arguing here in this book, and we provide a nice policy mapping exercise of all the relevant policies, is that we need to attend to policies at each stage of the life course, but also understand that we have to provide the linkages between those separate phases of our lives, because in fact, they do all start to merge. And at some periods in our lives, they actually overlap as you mentioned in the introduction. You can be a woman of 50 years of age, for example, in full-time work with elderly parents, perhaps even your own adult or teenage children and grandchildren on the way or helping to look after some grandchildren. So it's quite a complicated period and our policy settings have never really looked at it in that life course approach, sort of a whole of life approach. Elizabeth, are the policies that we do have in this country also based on assumptions about perhaps our household type or care models? For example, a heterosexual nuclear family versus extended family, Indigenous kinship systems, single parent households, same-sex couples? 
Yes, Hilary, um, absolutely. I mean, the history of Australia is to um, locate work and household around a, um, a male breadwinner model where you've got the man going out and earning the income and the woman providing um, care. And that um, leads to a lot of ambivalence and um, difficulty thinking beyond that. So we don't have policy settings that take into account extended families. We don't have policy st- um, settings that think about transnational care responsibilities. I mean, we've got um, a large migrant population in Australia. We're always being um, reminded that we're a very successful migrant country. And so that means a lot of our workers now have close family, parents, aunts, etc., who live in a third country. And so our policy settings really don't provide for that. And we also have neglected to take into account um, cultural responsibilities of our First Nations people um, and also those, um, you know, religious responsibilities, other kinds of family and community responsibilities that people from all backgrounds in Australia have. We've got a very um, narrow conception of the household and work and any kind of um, interaction between the two. So it's absolutely time that we thought more broadly and um, had a much uh, more diverse understanding of family types, family formations, how they change and morph over the life course. Uh, And it's inclusive of all Australian citizens. So that's a real work in progress. And Elizabeth, you make the fascinating point in the book that workplace policy is based around the idea that workers don't have care responsibilities outside their job. They're just a kind of working unit. Uh, what would it look like if we changed that? I mean, what, what implications does that have for people? Mm. Look, the notion that we don't have lives outside work is really changing at the moment. Um, and we can see this in the um, policy initiatives coming out of government, out of private sector, the kinds of things that are being pushed for by unions at the bargaining table. So there is a, there's an understanding now that we are more than just workers Um, But that certainly isn't our history. And I think there's a real challenge now for Australian policymakers across the public-private sector that um, to take take everybody um, as worker carers. We're all worker carers. We all have responsibility for someone else, almost all of us, at some stage in our life. And we all... um, typically need some form of care for ourselves from someone else at some stage in our life. So if we take that kind of notion of who we are in our workplace quite seriously as people, as as worker carers, then there's lots of changes that need to take place both in society and in our workplaces to really support that movement between work and care and make sure that people aren't penalised for being more than just a worker. Um, women have faced very long period of having what the literature calls a motherhood penalty. And as we um, include men um, particularly into the sphere of um, care for young children, we really can't have a system or a policy architecture that imposes a fatherhood penalty on them. If we if we do have that, well, then we will um, not have them taking up that care. We need to get rid of the, um, the penalties for being a worker carer and um, smooth the experience of movement between work and care so that people um, have access to long-term economic security over the entire life course. And perhaps you're thinking, I have many experiences over my life course while I'm listening to Professor Elizabeth Hill and Professor Marion Baird that, that resonate with what they're saying about those, those feelings of constraint that I have to choose between being productive at work and being a good 
good family member or a, a caring parent or spouse or relative. Professor Elizabeth Hill, who you've just been hearing from, is a professor at the Department of Political Economy at the University of Sydney. And Professor Marion Baird is a professor of Gender and Employment Relations at the University of Sydney. Marion, there was this sentence that just leapt out at me from the preface of the book uh, at a turning point. Mm-hmm. When we started this project, work, care and family policies in Australia were at absolute breaking point. Women and families were suffering from constant pressure and tension. This was manifested in declining fertility rates, increased stress at work and in the home and an ongoing unequal sharing of care between women and men. Uh, and the assumption is in heterosexual relationships. That's still the case for a lot of people. Why hasn't that situation changed so much, even though a lot of our policies have changed? Yes. Look, this was sort of the um, the point at which we were looking at all the research we had done over two decades, and yet still we were suffering this um, ultimate burden in work and care, and that COVID really highlighted those breaking points we were at. Um, I think we have changed, but the problem is there are always other problems and challenges that surface. So the issue we have to deal with is how do we predict what it's going to be like in the future? And one thing we can see right now is that there is increasing demand for everyone to be a worker. Now, when we want everyone to be a worker, men, women, and um of many ages, so we want diversity of genders and diversity of age in the workforce, Um, we have to consider, do our policy settings actually enable that to happen? And I think what's happened is there's always what's called a policy lag. It can take some time for policies in the public arena to catch up with the needs of society. And we're saying in this book, where we lay out the policy histories of the major policies for work and care in Australia, we say, look, here's the trajectory and here are the tension points and here's some ideas for the future. And we hope that by sort of putting that in paper, we're providing everyone with a with an a reasonably easy to read account of policy history in Australia and the pressure points we're at and what we could do to reconsider and make our working lives and our caring lives more equitable and more productive. And I have to say that would also lead to more reproduction, which is another tension point that is declining fertility rates. Yes, indeed. And it was intriguing to read that you were recommending uh, looking at reproduction care as starting before a child is born and and providing leave for things like uh, IVF treatments, menstruation leave, bereavement leave for stillbirth, um, which I personally would have found extremely handy, I I think, at the time. But, I mean, that's a really big change, isn't it, to how we think of the relationship between work and life outside work. I mean, some businesses might argue that that's an individual's choice to try for a family. Why should they fund things like leave for for IVF? What are your thoughts on that? Mm. Yes, and look, to be honest, this is one of the most interesting and dynamic policy areas at the moment, not just in Australia, but internationally. And it's really arisen because we have high proportions of women of childbearing age and families who are suffering from the dilemmas of trying to conceive and have children. Um, And they're always at work. And we know that that pressure and that time constraint can really impact on the ability to form families. Now, employers 
are actually catching on to this and quite a few employers in the private sphere have turned their attention to this because they do understand the tensions this is putting their own workers under. And um, they don't want to lose skilled workers. They do want to retain them. And so they're paying attention to these areas. But it is an area of, for some families, it's something they don't want to discuss in the public sphere of the workplace. But a clever well-designed policy will enable people to explain to their supervisors or their managers and the employers who are sort of ahead of the game are already working out how to respond to these requests. And I think this is a really important part. Um, Being at work doesn't mean you're not still part of your body. (laughs) And so there's that concept of the disembodied worker, which has really um, gone hand in hand with the male breadwinner model. And we're saying it's time to break that down as well. Interesting, though, when we think about how actual workplaces deal with actual people, which is so much what this book is about. Women have uh, learnt over the time not to make a fuss about having very painful periods or uh, needing extra healthcare around menopause and things like that because workplaces, employers can, can view them then as costing them more and causing more stress. Is it a good idea to have specific leave around menstruation and menopause, as you suggest, or is it better just to expand sick leave for everyone? This is another debate that's um, underway right now. There are varying schools of thought on this, um, but we can see the younger generation of workers are actually saying, we want this recognised. So there's that group of younger people in the workforce who are being quite explicit about their needs. And interestingly, older women, I am talking cisgender women at the moment, um, do are really making claims for menopause leave and adaptations in the workplace. And I think that's because that's an educated group of women who've come through, have realised how much they have invested in work and given to society and the economy, and they want some changes made in the workplace to enable them to stay. And, you know, in in a lot of industries, we don't want those women to leave either because, um, for example, the aged care sector does have an older workforce. We do not need all of those women to suddenly say we can't be at work anymore. So this is an economic imperative as well as a personal one. That's an interesting tension, isn't it? When you said before, you know, we we want everyone to be a worker, I could hear my listeners' ears Mm -hmm. prick up and then thinking maybe, well, do do we want everyone to be potentially a worker? Do we want everyone to be first and foremost a citizen, an active member of society, someone who's able to provide care? Because another plank of this book, isn't it, is that that work is valuable. It it has a huge uh, economic value, but it also should have a social value. Mm. Absolutely. I'll hand over to Liz for that. Yeah, I think one of the main reasons, um, main arguments we're making in this book is that it is time for a new social contract, a new social contract that um, gives everybody the right to care and the right to be cared for. And I think that really changes the way we um, need to think about our home life, our community life and our work life. So we're certainly not advocating that everyone should be a full-time worker, not at all. But what we are arguing that we need a policy architecture that allows for a much smoother transition between the needs of ourselves 
as individuals, our families, our friendship groups, our communities and our workplaces and that supports that transition in a way that allows economic security to be built. Because frankly, our history is one in which we have men gaining economic security at the cost of women's economic insecurity. And that has all kinds of negative outcomes over the life course, um, including poverty in old age. And that's a, a real issue um, that's been raised recently by a lot of um, community groups um, around um, women, older women living in poverty and being homeless. So the new social contract that puts gender equality at the centre is a way to think about redefining our policy architecture so that we have a smoother movement and less economic penalties. Um, so we know from a lot of the literature that um, and research that work is important. It's important for people's identity and in the qualitative um, research work we do with women in Australia, they universally say that work is an important part of their um, daily activities, their identity, their ability to uh, access some form of economic security. But they also really want to be able to look after themselves, their families and their communities. And so the challenge for Australia at the moment is to... Uh, work, rework our policy architecture that allows for that and allows men to share the care also without facing an economic penalty. Because as long as those penalties remain for carers and people who do things outside of work and it's not valued or it's undervalued, then we won't reach a point of um, uh, a more equitable distribution between work and care. So that's that's the challenge. Um, that's the point at which we are at. Mm. Um, and that's kind of underpins our life course approach to really, and it's a challenge for policymakers to really close those gaps between these discrete pieces of policy architecture that we do have. And it has to be said, um, at the moment, many of those are starting to um, improve, but there's a lot further to go. Well, we're getting some fascinating texts from men and women illustrating some of the nuance around mm. our, our assumptions about care. Matthew says, I'm a gay man in his in my 50s and found myself needing to spend significant time mm. caring for my mother in her 80s a few years ago. I felt extremely fortunate that having worked in good health for three decades for the same company, I was able mm. to access a generous amount of sick and carers leave to get done what I needed to. And Matthew says, I worry for those who find themselves in the gig economy or having moved employers frequently when they need to access time to care for loved ones or indeed themselves, as, as our guests have mentioned today. And Jane in Sydney says, even a hetero couple now mostly both need to work to pay for housing. Mm. She says, I'm a sole parent and have cared for my ex-partner, some government support early on, but that didn't even cover rent. So I used my savings. I was fortunate to have had flexibility to work from home, but now finding mandated three days a week in the office reduces my ability to be home for my son. Nonetheless, I'm working. And it's awful if you're having to use up your savings too uh, over the course of your life to do that caring work. Yeah. Can Chris, I say two things yeah. here, Hilary? Um, one is the um, point that one of your listeners has made about um, access to good, flexible work. This is a really critical part of the um, policy architecture. It's something that um, some of our colleagues write about in the book. So we make a they make a distinction between good flex and bad flex work. And we have a lot of bad flexible work, which is um, organised at the prerogative of the, of the employer. And we're really arguing that very strongly that uh, good workplaces, good employers, employers that really provide decent support for this movement between work and care uh, need to be providing high quality 
um, flexible work that allows for ongoing career progression um, over the life course and doesn't require people to opt sideways or down in order to manage their care responsibilities. Uh, so flexibility is a really important part of, of the story here. Yes, indeed. We're speaking with Elizabeth Hill, who's a professor at the Department of Political Economy at the University of Sydney, and Professor Marianne Baird, who's a professor of Gender and Employment Relations at the University of Sydney. They're contributing editors on a new book called At a Turning Point, Work, Care and Family Policies in Australia. We've looked a little bit about the early stages of life. And as you've been saying, uh, both of you, we need to tie our ideas of caring together across the whole lifespan. Let's look briefly at the, the later ends of life. What are the challenges that exist now in, a, a, I guess, a, an aged care system that, that has privatised elements, non-privatised elements, uh, family and community supports, and quite a different uh, range of skills and tasks and responsibilities attendant upon it, I guess, if you're caring for an older person with you know, a variety of needs. What still needs to be done there? Well, in the area of um, what we refer to often as elder care, uh, from a workplace perspective, one of the issues is that um, elder care, which is different to childcare, it often comes up unexpectedly or you know it's coming but you don't know exactly when. It's more sporadic and it's often shorter periods of time that are needed but um, they can't often they can't be programmed or timetabled in the same way. So this sort of interruption to work can make work for workers quite difficult to maintain. And so policies that actually um, make it visible that elder care is one of the caring stages of life is where we think more attention needs to be paid. And say that not just from the employer's point of view, we've found in research one of my PhD students has done that workers themselves may be reluctant to speak up about elder care. It's quite different to talk about your frail aged father or mother at work than a lovely baby who's come along. So um, these are some of the problems that are really embedded quite deeply in the way in which as a society we manage care at that phase of life. And just very briefly and finally, the massive difference between regional and urban uh, centres when it comes to the level and type of support that's, uh, that's available, how much do we need to change things there to, to equalise the burden? Yeah, Hilary, this is a real challenge for a country like Australia that has such significant remote and regional areas. We know, particularly in the early childhood education and care space, the childcare deserts that exist in remote and regional areas really put a very firm um, stop on people's on, on um, families' capacity to engage in paid um, paid care. Uh, sorry, in paid work. Um, similarly, around aged care disability, they just don't have the um, the choice, and often they just don't have the access. So this is a this is a very specific challenge for um, for Australian policymakers, and there aren't um, it doesn't seem to be any easy solutions to that. But certainly something that needs to continue to be worked on. And I think in the in the formal service um, provision area, there are strong arguments for governments to provide supply side funding for centres that can provide at least a um, a basic level of care for for households 
households and communities. Yep, and we had a discussion about specifically childcare and mm. looking at that stark difference recently on Life Matters. You can find that on the ABC Listen app. Uh, Professor Elizabeth Hill, Professor Marion Baird, thank you both so much for taking the time to explore all these different facets of care with us today on Life Matters. Thank you, Hilary. And can I say the book um, is available through Sydney University Press Mm -hmm. and um, we're really pleased to have been able to produce it through our own university's press and um, it's a great little compendium of policies for people to read. It is. It's it's a quick read too. It's a really quick and interesting read. Uh, Elizabeth Hill is a professor at the Department of Political Economy at the University of Sydney. Marion Baird is a professor of Gender and Employment Relations at the University of Sydney and the book's called At a Turning Point, Work, Care and Family Policy in Australia. So many texts came through on that. I'll just read one from Imogen in Canberra. She says, politicians always refer to families, but there's a growing cohort of single member households that get overlooked. Expenses are higher for single people, despite caring roles they may have. Imogen says, I'm very pleased, however, for the mat leave provisions, and I hope they improve. Very different from my time. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.